And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show today. I am talking to one of the most well-known names in the media industry, the human headline turned politician, Senator Darren Hinch. Good morning. Oh, it is so good, good to have morning. you on G- the journal- show. Journos hate interviewing other journos, don't they? I love it. Oh, oh good. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be fun then. Okay. I must have a weird sickness. Yeah. Before I get into all the sort of how did yeah. you get into media gear, do you ever get bored of being called Senator? I feel like it's the non-medical school version of being called a doctor. Yeah, it, it, it is an honour. And I mean, I never dreamed I'd jump the shark. No way in my wildest dreams I think I'll become a senator. And then uh, the last time I got out of jail, as they say, I decided what do we do next? We did a jail to justice walk from the prison, Langy Calcal prison, to the steps of Parliament House in Victoria. Presented a petition, about 120,000, 130,000 names for trying to get a national public register convicted sex offenders. And then somebody said, what are you going to do next? And I thought, well, I'm not doing much on getting there on the outside. Let's see if we can do something from the inside. And here I am. And here you here are. Well, obviously a lot of people want to talk to you about politics these days, but I want to talk to you about little Darren Hinch, baby Darren Hinch with the beard, getting into media and what it was about this business that sort of caught your eye. Was it something that you wanted to do from when you were little? Look, I didn't think so, but looking back on it now – when I was a kid, I, I started. I, I actually um, got a little Vegemite jar, a peanut butter jar, and drew a sun on a piece of paper and made a mock-up newspaper, not knowing. And I was about ten, not knowing that twenty years later I'll be the editor of the Sun newspaper in Sydney. Wow! You know, um, and I was always fascinated by the news. I mean, I'd fight my dad to get the, the newspaper as the the Taranaki Herald yep. circulation about twelve thousand. Whenever that hit the, the the front lawn, we'd dive to grab it first, and and I was fascinated. And Back in those days, it was around the time of um, the first astronauts, and I, I was fascinated by that. And that, the weirdest thing is, in 1960, I started as a journalist on Taranaki Herald. Nine years later, this is a little tiny town in New Zealand, nine years later, I'm at uh, Cape Canaveral watching men go to the moon, uh, broadcasting live for, for Macquarie for radio uh, on something like 54 stations around Australia. Wow. Was that unusual for a kid like, were you different yes. from your friends to be yeah. interested in that yeah, stuff? Yeah, very much so. And also, mm. and I lied about my age forever. And I, I'm, I added years and years and years. So I would have been 25, pretending I was 31 or something like that. You know? Were you trying to add gravitas? I, I, yes, I did. Well, mm. just, and, and add years. And uh, mm. uh, ironically, um, I aged about three years overnight because I was, I was suddenly made bureau chief in Fairfax in New York. And I was 26, claiming to be 32. And as I walked out the door... The general manager said, first of all, he said, you've been a lucky young man all your life, Mr. Hinch. And I said, no, Mr. Falkingham, you make your own luck. But he said, oh, by the way, you're 35, aren't you? And I thought, he's asking for a reason. I said, yeah, of course. He said, yeah, because we have a policy of appointing executives at 35. So I had to go home to my wife and say to her, I've aged another three years. <laughs> was, I mean, was this where the beard was born to try and give yourself a few extra I, years? Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. Really? Was yeah, it? I, yeah, I started, yeah, I, I started growing, growing a beard and I had the... The Amish look. I didn't have a moustache. I had that Amish Abe Lincoln sort of look. Yeah. It was really weird. But ironically, I got into newspapers, had nothing to do with my own drive and whatever, because I used to live next door to the news editor of the local paper in my hometown, used to mow his lawns on Saturday mornings and steal his home brew on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> you know? And and he, I said, have you ever thought of getting in a, new, in a newspaper? And I said, no way, I said, because you have to work Saturdays. 
And I, I played football on Saturdays. Mm. No, nobody worked on Saturdays. But he said, we'll go and see the editor. And that year they hired two cadets on the local paper. And I was one of them. And ironically, I didn't know what a high school dropout was until I went to America and discovered I was one. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Because you left you 15, 15, school, you were working yeah. there, right? Yeah. So was was that unusual at the time or were most people sort of leaving school A lot school of them were leaving. Work? I mean, unless you – my brother managed to get what they called a bursary. He went on to university. We couldn't – we were a very poor family. We couldn't afford, mm. afford it. Your sisters were never expected to go to university. They just went to work. And uh, I know my dad had said to me, you've got to get your leaving certificate here or your, what they call your school C, your school certificate. To get a pass, you had to get 200 out of 400. I got exactly 200 out of 400. Uh, and uh, went to, so I went to typing school, me the only male with about 30 young females typing school. That was fun. Did you really? And you put a little napkin around your, a bib around your neck. So Why? You, so, so you can't see the keyboard. And you learn. <gasps> oh, touch typing. Touch typing. But what? the thing was, at night time, you're going to learn you know, ASDFG. You're learning to mm. touch type. But next morning, you're getting screamed at by the news editor. So I do touch type, but I've got I use about two and a half fingers on each hand and, and, and thumbs. You know, so, so, so if your first idea, like you love the newspapers and you love reading the news, but you weren't sort of thinking about it as a career potentially until your neighbour got you in for that yeah, cadetship. Yeah, and I got there and I realised just how much I loved it, you know. And I had a um, the woman was um, was the woman's editor, and I actually dedicated one of my books to her. Human Headlines, I dedicated to her. Her name was June Lipman. And she should have been an editor, but she was female. So back then, mm. you just didn't get there. And she took an interest in me. And years later, I asked her why. I went to her farewell. I said, you always took an interest in me. And she said, because unlike the other cadet who started the same day you did, after the paper had gone to bed, I'd go into her and say, "That you've changed my intro on that. I did this, and you've written that, and you cut that paragraph out. She, you showed you wanted to, to know how to do it. And I did find that from my time at school, this really influenced me. I get 98 for English and... 30 for mass. You know. I did a year of trigonometry for $1,000. I couldn't tell you what on earth it is except something about pi squared. <laughs> That's all I know about trig. Um, but I could always get to write clever essays. And that's why I've written 14 books. I love writing. Mm. I just love writing. I still write stuff for for the Facebook page for Justice Party. I recall my English teacher calling me up before the class once and said, I'm going to give you shared top marks for this. I shouldn't because you're a smart ass, right? Because... Sabrina came to she's a famous like a Diana Dawes, Jane Mansfield, Marilyn Monroe. Sabrina came to Australia and New Zealand. And she was a very buxom lady, Sabrina. Mm. They, you can still go on YouTube and find the Castrol advertisement of Sabrina with a white sweater on. <laughs> but anyway, so I my intro, I wrote, She came, they saw, she's contoured. <laughs> <laughs> I was about 14. <laughs> did you, if you're sort of, you know, in some ways excelling at those subjects and not at others, did you dislike school or it was just oh, frustrating? Oh, you couldn't wait to get out. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I was one of those students, you'd say, why? And I'd say, because it just is, that's why. Mm. And I, I got caned a lot. I was a smart, I was a smart ass at school. I, I can't imagine that, you know, Darren. I played, you know, <laughs> showed off and played <laughs> up and I couldn't wait to get out of the, re- the real world. Mm. You know? And so I left school at 15, worked for two years on the Taranaki Herald, lied about my qualifications and my, my age and managed to get a job on the Christchurch Star, which is a metropolitan paper, 
Worked there for only about eight months. I think this was my first of my sackings from was that one there. Uh, <laughs> and then I went to a little paper in Hamilton called the Waikato Times. I went there for th- only for three months and I got sacked from there. Why um, did you keep getting sacked? Oh, a variety of reasons. One, a photographer stole the office car, went to Auckland, and I went with him. So right. I, I, resi- I resigned. It was, I mean, I said, to save you the embarrassment of sacking me and me the indignity of being fired, I resign as of now. Thank you. <laughs> and he's now I'm 17 or 18. He said, you beat me by 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get in first. Get in first. So, and, but all the time was to try and get a bit of grading, you know. You'd, so you'd, yes. And so suddenly I'm a, I arrive in Australia and I have copy boys older than me on the Sydney Sun. I got a job as a police rounds reporter on the Sydney Sun. The funny thing there was, there was a guy called Len Cosy, who was the news editor. He had a three-month trial. And I got through the three months, and two days after the three months was up, he said, damn it, I meant to sack you on Friday, and I forgot, and now it's too late. Gee, and, you just got in. <laughs> and so I got in. And then I, I, loved, I loved being a police reporter in Sydney, and I did a couple of years of that. Went back to my old hometown newspaper to save some money, and then by mistake, I actually migrated to Canada. What? I, what I, do you mean by mistake? Well, I, I, I want to go to Canada to meet up with a girlfriend who was coming back from Europe, and I just thought that's what you did. The people, I want to get a visa, and I ended up having... Test for tuberculosis in Christ knows what, and I thought that's what you did. And suddenly I, I arrive in Montreal as a landed migrant, and I said, oh, I don't want to be a Canadian. You know? hang, hang on a second, don't we have a few citizenship issues going <laughs> yeah, 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 on at the right. moment? Yes, yeah, I've never, never tell about that one. Uh, so yeah, so I and I arrived in Montreal. That was a good one because that was United Press International. I got mm. a job there uh, on UPI, and that taught you speed and accuracy and all those things. And I was only there a few couple of months. And they um, they made me the bureau chief in Toronto for you know, for UPI. Uh, wow! And Were you just great? Were I, they? Oh, I must have been. I must have been pretty good. I'm 22. <laughs> yeah. Guy on 26. Um, <laughs> they sent me to cover the Commonwealth Games in Kingston, Jamaica, in 1966. Was a lot of this stuff happening in a way that you were sort of thinking, "How am I here?" No, I just thought it was the way it worked. Right. I really did. I thought this was the way it worked. I mean, in Jamaica. I actually shared a room with the world's first paparazzi. His name was Ray Belisario. I said, what do you do? He didn't know anything about the games. He didn't seem that interested in when the sport was starting, when it wasn't starting. I said, what are you here for? He said, well, I'm here to try and get a picture of Princess Anne in a bikini. And no one else was doing that and at the time. No one was doing that. And then, ironically, years later, when I was bureau chief in New York for Fairfax, I hired a guy called Ron Galella, who was the famous paparazzi who, who used to do all the Jackie Kennedy pictures. And I was sweating because one day he asked me, could he borrow my Sydney Morning Herald press pass? And I gave it to him. He got nearly got arrested. He was ordered to go stay 50 metres away from Jackie. I thought, if he gets in a court that my press pass is in his pocket, I'm yes. in real... How do I explain this to anybody? And his, he was the guy who once... I think Marlon Brando tried to punch him. He used to wear motorbike helmets on jobs and things. Oh, wow. so, so that's So I found myself based partly in Toronto and partly in Ottawa, covering politics there. Then I decided I was spending so many weekends in New York City, I thought, this is where I want to be. And I thought Fairfax, I knew they had a vacancy coming up. I knew they'd be too mean to pay for somebody to come all the way from Australia. So I said, look, I'll pay my own way. I'll pay Mm. my own airfare to New York. 
and got the job. How do you? How are you finding out about those jobs? Because obviously we're not in the days of the internet at that stage. So how did you oh, know well, you that just, Fairfax? You know, you, you, in the uh, the Three Lions Hotel with the next to the New York Daily News, and somebody say, "Hey, I hear there's a job coming up at Fairfax, or something's coming up here or there." So just gossip, you know. So w- when you went to Australia and worked at the Sun, and yeah. then you came back, you know, did you have a plan or a dream? I've never, or I've a... never ever had a plan. Right. So why never. did you end up moving to Australia at that point? Well, just from uh, well from New Zealand, I just wanted to get out in the big world yeah uh, then did a couple of years in Australia and then I thought no I want to go overseas and I want to work in in North America and and it was great because I covered North and South America for Fairfax which was good and I hadn't planned not to come back at all ever to Australia I thought I'd live in America I love New York but I'd come home on I used to come home once a year on holidays mm. because this is a good little perk um Qantas had an in-flight magazine. They had airways. There's something else called like a newspaper. Yeah. And I'd write a monthly column what's on at the theatre. And all you have to do, you didn't go to the theatre. You just oh. see what's going on and read what the reviews are like and say the New York Times says this and this is a hit show and this is not a hit show and da 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 And in exchange for the 12 columns a year for the QV magazine, that's what it was, QV, I got two first-class New York Sydney air tickets. Oh, go away. Come yeah, that, on. That was it. And, and I thought, this is, yeah. Haven't times changed? Yeah, yes, haven't, haven't they? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'd, and I'd come home every year. Mm. And I came home and to Warwick Fairfax, the owner of Fairfax, uh, took me to lunch at Beppy's in Sydney and uh, started to have a chat. And I must have oversold myself because the next thing I know, they said, we want you to come home as deputy editor of the paper. Wow. And I talked to a friend who's a Fleet Street reporter, and he said, just remember, what well, you're going to do it. And I said, I don't know. I don't, really don't want to. He said, well, just think of the shaving mirror test. I said, what's that? He said, if you say no, and every morning you look in the mirror, you'll think, I wonder if I could have done it. And also, if you're complaining about your paper being a rag, get home and change it. And we did. I came home, and I did say to them, okay, I'll come home as deputy editor. If I'm not editor in six months, I'll quit. And in three months, I was editor. Wow. Uh, was it- we, we, we changed the masthead. We changed, cleaned it up, you know. And, uh, and they were, the, the headlines, the posters when I first came to, to Sydney mm. in the Daily Mirror and the, um, and the Sun were disgraceful. I remember a classic one. Liz Taylor got sick and had to have a tracheotomy. Mm. And um, the headline has, Liz Taylor sick. Right? Next edition is Liz sinking, you know. Liz grave. Oh, wow. And the final edition said, film star dies. Oh. It wasn't Liz Taylor who died. It was on page 47, George Formby had died. Oh, gosh. <laughs> or another one, classic one was um, Whitlam Divorce. This on the Daily Mirror. A little type strapper lies, says Margaret. Oh. And that's what they did. I mean, wow. I, when Mark Day, we were the bearded bookends. He was head of the Daily Mirror and I was head of the Sun. We'd worked against each other in New York. He'd be on the Mirror and I'd be on the Sun. And uh, there's not much love lost between us. But I had on my, my office wall a mirror poster that said, model, rape, horror. Right? There was no model, there was no rape, there was no horror. Margot Hemingway's sister, she, they were actresses, mm. played a model who gets sexually abused in a movie. But so they had, <laughs> that's the point. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they used to laugh about it. And, um, and so, so I started printing their posters in my paper saying, this is disgusting. Really? Yeah, yeah, to try and... And I remember once... Mark Day and I were doing Four Corners, and he backed me up against the wall of the men's room and almost grabbed me by the throat, saying, I know what you're effing trying to do. You're not going to make me wear the f***ing black hat. 
<laughs> You're trying to wear the white hat. You're no better than me. And he went off his face about it. <gasps> wow. So was that you? Obviously, I've read that you thought that the New York job was like the best job in journalism yeah, at is. the time. It still is. Yeah. What, what was it about that that you well, loved so I mean, much? Okay. I mean, you're based in New York. I moved there in 1966. So I'm 22. And I lived there till 19, late 1975, early 76. And in that 10 years, you only covered the biggest stories. You know, mm. I covered Watergate. I went saw men go to the moon. I covered Martin Luther King's assassination, Bobby Kennedy's assassination, which was uh, 50 years ago last week. Mm. You, know? um, you covered the big, the biggest stories around, uh, and to be in the Ebenezer Baptist Church for Martin Luther King's funeral is just stuff you can't. I mean, you really have got one seat on the aisle of history. And it's, it's a great experience. And What's the lifestyle like there? Is it a whole – I mean, how did it work? Was it a, like one central location and there were a lot of different people there from a lot of different publications? We, no, like- no. We all, we, we, uh, the, the Murdoch mob worked out of the Daily Mirror building, which was then on, on uh, East 42nd Street. The Fairfax mob, we worked out of the New York Times building, which was on West 44th, 43rd Street. And you only saw each other – Sometimes you go meet at the same same bar at night time and, 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 and bullshit each other and chew the fat. Yeah. Or you'd um, uh, then you'd meet on jobs. And the, so the f- same Fleet Street guys, the same journalists. I want to tell you this quick story because it's Please. such a beautiful yarn. A dear friend of mine died uh, last week. He was a Fleet Street journal who became a New York Daily News gun reporter. Mm. You know? And the, I met him at the Chicago Convention in 1968. Now, the Yippies were there. Mayor Daly was the mayor. He was a corrupt old bastard. He'd bought the election for John Kennedy in 1960 and all that. And the Yippies and the Hippies were all there. And the mayor was claiming they are going to poison the water supply and put drugs and LSD in the water. And there's what Walter Cronkite would call a police riot. And I'm staying at the Conrad Hilton Hotel. I'm standing outside the street. There's all the Yippies and the Hippies behind you in a park. Mm. Coming towards us is this wall of coppers with riot shields, batons, the works, uh, and incongruously, baby blue, duck egg blue sort of helmet, riot helmets. I looked around and thought, well, I don't know what I'm going here because the tear gas was starting to flow, and I saw a ladder going up onto the canopy. So I race up this ladder, and a voice screams at me, says, NBC only. And I said, bullshit, Hinch, Sydney Morning Herald, and dived on the roof as the coppers are going past. Next I hear, Burton, Daily News, and Tony Burton dived on top of me. from He was up there. And we became lifelong friends oh, from, from that story. And two things happened. One is that uh, he got cancer recently, a few months ago, and he went to a hospice. A nurse said, look, when people know they're going to die, they sometimes get obsessed with things. You know, something really bugs them, they want to get fixed. And Leonora, his wife, um, said, said, I wonder what it is. I said, well, a year ago he told me how upset he was. He's written four books, and his fifth one he thought was his best. He couldn't get published. And it really was bugging him. So she went to a local graphic artist who did some work for her. She had a little knick-knack shop in Cold Spring, New York, and said, can you dummy up a, a cover for me? Now, Leonora, the wife, had been in publishing years ago and helped me get my Scrabble book published in 1975 in New York. Mm. And she takes the cover in and says, well, Tony, we've got your book published. And then she went away, and he was so thrilled. Next day, she had been in and out of, slipping in and out of comas. Next day, she said to the uh, printer, to girl, what's the minimum you could print? And she said, oh, we could print 12, well, I'll buy 12. So she takes 12, she has the, the real book now with mm. the cover and everything on, takes it to the hospital, and a nurse, unsuspecting, says, oh, I'd love a signed copy. So they, with his faltering hand, he signed the book and died. 
No. Isn't that the most amazing story? Yeah. Oh. Signed the book and died. And so, and then she put up on Facebook to thank the printer and she got 50 orders for the book. So she's sending me mine this week. So, oh, that is so <laughs> and, magic. And the other good story about him is this, is that all those years I was adding years to my age, yeah. Tony uh, was wooing Leonora, a young Welsh flight attendant. And uh, I knew he was lying about his age, but he was taking it down, not putting it up. <laughs> so when we went places like the Caribbean on holidays, we got three of us would go together sometimes. Mm. We'd all be hiding each other, hiding our passports so nobody knew. <laughs> So yesterday morning on the phone, I said to her, I said, Laura, you know, and I know, I was putting my age up, but he was taking this down. How old was he? She said, 89. Oh my so he'd goodness. taken 15 years off oh, his age. Wow. So my, my ex-wife, Jackie Weaver, said, no wonder he was so paternalistic to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I thought, what's that beautiful story about his book? And then, oh, yeah, that's incredible. So, yeah. But, I, but that, that made me think, just, I love writing. I, st- I still love writing. And uh, so... I still write a weekly column, which I'll either maybe, I don't know, maybe MUP or print it. I don't know. If mm. not, I'll do it myself, I'll probably. When you came home and took that job uh, and left New York, did you feel when you got there, I've made the right decision, or did you say, I think, oh, I might have left something good behind? Part of it was exciting mm. to be editor. I was the youngest metropolitan editor in the country because I was 32. Uh, Were you really 32? I was really 32. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. this is the thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ironically, um, the the boss I mentioned in Forkingham, he was the managing director, or the general manager. He used to like Jade Hoover, He'd write on green paper, so if it was on green paper, it had to come from him. So I come back from celebrating my birthday, and there's a pile of green paper alongside the red phone, the office phone. Uh, and I thought, oh, so I called him up and I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Forkingham. I said I've been out. So actually, actually, I've been out celebrating my birthday. He said, well, that's why I was calling, just to wish you happy birthday. I said, that's very sweet. Thank you. And he paused, he said, well, next one's a biggie, isn't it? And I thought, 33, 34, no big deal. I said, no, why? He said, well, the big four O. Oh, sugar. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. I said, it's, it's 34. And I could hear him thinking, hold on, this guy was our bureau chief. I could see him doing reverse sums there. I said, oh, I know what it was. When I came here in 1963, originally, I added a few years. He said, well, fix the archives. I don't like archives to be wrong. <laughs> Well, by that stage, well, I suppose matter. you exactly yeah. you proved your worth yeah, enough. Do, do you think you were a good editor? Yeah, I had a uh, well. The greatest compliments I had was from uh, a woman reporter passed it on to another male journalist who came to me a few years ago and said, "I bumped into Sansa in the foyer of Fairfax, and she said, you know, back in the, this in the seventies, Hinch was the best woman's editor, editor for women there was, because mm. I I try to treat female journalists the same as you treat male journalists. You know, and sometimes mm. you treat them badly, but yeah, yeah. No, everybody's the same. Um, and then when we got to television, we were, oh, you often your director's assistants were all were women, your producers were women. Um, and the best thing about being an editor was that I we ch- changed the paper. I mean, we said no bullshit headlines. Got rid of the page three bikini girl. You know, yeah, said right. this is for news. And they, we used to run a bikini girl on page three of the paper mm. and the mirror every every day, and uh, and and hold journos accountable. Did you have a sort of um, a public profile as the editor of the paper? Uh, not a very big one, mm. but I had been this guy called Brian White, who was a, who became the boss of Three AW in the end. But he was he ran his own program on Two GB in Sydney, and uh, I was his New York correspondent. So I'd speak to 2GB and Macquarie uh, every day. Right. Uh, and so I had a profile. And I suddenly realised, having been a journalist for a few years, I came back through Sydney Airport on a visit once, and as I checked my passport, the guy said, oh, you're on, you're on the radio. 
You know, not a word. I've been coming back and forth as a, as a print journal, and suddenly that was there. So, and then doing the promos, and I also was doing stuff on. Uh, when I got back, I was doing uh, stuff on Two UE as well as, as stuff, and and I and I'd also voice all our own our radio ads and stuff like that as well. Right. But then I I quit after two years as editor. I went to New York and bought the rights to People magazine in Australia. I didn't know that. And I started a magazine called Focus. And it was the first magazine to sell in supermarkets. I got on the 3,000 supermarket front. The most valuable real estate in Australia is the front stand at the, at the supermarket checkout. And we got there, and it was a spectacular favour. We just ran out, of, ran out of friends, ran out of money. And uh, I quit to put this out. We only got about three editions out on the street, and then we went broke. Mm. But Kerry Packer, um, I went to see Kerry, and uh, he said, uh, we'll buy it. We'll take it over. It's a good concept. You know, it was. The, it became Who magazine eventually. So what the Who magazine you see now started out as was the People magazine in America, and we called it Focus here, and it became Who. Um, but Kerry said, "You won't come into the office at Park Street. You'll uh, you'll stay somewhere where you are in Paddington. And you'll do it all there. Uh, we'll bankroll you, but you're not to tell anybody that that you're with us with ACP, oh. because he's worried that the news agents." would rebel and throw the Women's Weekly out if they found out that magazines were being sold in supermarkets, this whole new whiz-bang thing. And the news agents, the official news agency group, thought this would hurt their business if newspapers started magazines were selling in supermarkets. And he had a guy called Harry Chester worked for Packer in those days. And Harry Chester had a bloody possum in his roof one night, and he woke up to this possum, and while he's lying there thinking, he thought, we can't risk this, so I go in to see Kerry at in Park Street to be the big sign up and get the check and he said it's off we're not doing it he said but I'll I'll give you a few free commercials on Channel 9 for your magazine and that was so the deal fell through isn't that fascinating when you consider where we're at now yeah. with magazines yeah. everywhere and you just yeah. think there's that... a little pre-social media of course yeah gosh yeah. you're so ahead of the curve aren't you <laughs> always ahead of the curve so then in terms of the radio gigs that you've done was the first one hosting you did was it 3XY yeah 3 3X Wife Wife to 9 for and more <laughs> yeah <laughs> So what was, was – were you approached by somebody? I was approached by them, yeah. Right. Actually by Harry Beitzel, who's a famous old name. Who, mm. He knew people down there and they said, look, they wanted to replicate – Mike Gibson was doing, and George Moore were doing a show on 2SM in Sydney mm-hmm. and they wanted to try and replicate that with a journal and a jock. So I get down there to 3XY and they put me and Keith Williams, they put him on, mm-hmm. and, and Keith, Hinch and Williams. And uh, it didn't work. Uh, I remember Keith – at one stage, his girlfriend would say, well, you don't get a word in, you know. He dominates. You don't get a word in. So we're interviewing, we're interviewing a famous um, gynecologist in, from Connecticut, I remember this, about birth control and oral contraceptives. And Keith suddenly, without hearing one of those great radio voices, you know, the old, show me a great radio voice and I'll show you a dickhead. Right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, That's so said, true. <laughs> he says, tell me, Professor. What is the um, the best form of birth control? Would you say the pill or oral contraceptives? <laughs> and I said, Keith, you must have a hell of a home life. <laughs> and and he quit. Oh so, gosh! So he quit. So they replaced him with Hans Torv, and we didn't even get to air. We had our photos taken. For, so here's the new team. We then went to have a, a beer together in the local pub, the Golden Age, down next door to the newspaper. And he said, what do you think of me? I said, uh, I'm not overly impressed 
by your intellect or your table manners. He said, gee, that's a bit cruel. And he, he pulled the pin. I, luckily, I went from there to 3AW, and that's when I really made my market radio because mm. we, I was getting low 20s, and that was those days all the FM stations combined didn't get my 22. Yeah, right. And then Scase came uh, saying to me and said, I want you... I want you to be the Walter Cronkite of Australia. I want you to do what you want to do. So when you came across to 3AW, did the sort of 3XY stuff just – it just fizzled out and then they kind of – 3AW – No, XY actually um, put me on paid leave. Oh, that's uh, always nice. They didn't know what to do with me, so they put me on paid leave. And the Melbourne Herald ran a picture of me sitting in a – my manager's swimming pool with a glass of champagne saying, the highest paid unemployed man in Australia – because I think I was earning fifteen hundred a week, and this is nineteen seventy-eight or something. Yeah. You know? And so that was. Uh, and sadly, I'd been offered. People didn't believe this. I thought I made it up. But the original three sixty-minute reporters in seventy-eight was meant to be Ray Martin, George Negus, and me. And the only reason Negus now believes that's true is that one day on radio, I said, "George, when you first started in nineteen seventy-eight, Peter Meekin paid you seven hundred dollars a week." He said, that's right. I said, yeah. I said, because that's what they offered me. And then Ian Leslie got the gig because I'd already had a handshake with a radio station and that was the one thing I should have done back then. Mm. And that's why years and years and years later, I really enjoyed it after I got sacked from AW the last time. Uh, I got hired by uh, Sunday Night and did some – I really enjoyed doing stories for them and uh, I think – that's a sort of it's a job I wish I'd done for longer. Mm. When you first went to Three AW, was there no discussion of a co-host? It was just you're going to be just me, the yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. And, and do you remember? I think I replaced Doug Mulray. Oh really? Yeah, Mulray, Mulray, and George Lehman. They called them Mulray and the Man, and, oh, I, wow. and they got the flick and I, I replaced him. But it's all current affairs and hard journos, and you know, I had the worst voice in radio. And did did you sort of was that the? I know you'd been speaking on the radio and doing some phone-ins and things like that, but was that the first time you'd actually just solo hosted a show? Yes, yeah. I actually, when I was editor of The Sun, 2UE got me to a Saturday night program. I filled in about four, four hours on a Saturday night right. and you played your own music and just talked and took talkback calls and stuff like that. And that's where the That's Life theme song came from, from that 2UE thing about 1978. You know, oh, okay. That was it then. So when you were doing the 3AW gig, did you sort of take to that like a duck to water? Oh, yeah. And then it was, I mean, such stuff was going on. I mean, I had the electronic media blackout. I kept getting suspended, you know, it gets, uh <laughs> And then, of course, then I went to jail for the first time mm-hmm. and then years later had the five months of house arrest. And then the last last time in jail, they put me in a solitary confinement for the first two weeks. Did they? Down there at the Metropolitan Assessment Prison down in Melbourne, yeah. When, so. when you were, you know, jail and arrest and things have been a part of your career, did it ever scare you or, or was it something that you felt like was a, um, a oh, justifiable it was, payment? It was justifiable, to, to do yeah. it, but... This sounds – some psychologists have thumb on me on this, I suppose. But I, I actually – the journalist kicked in. Almost – it sounds awful putting a third person, but you know what I'm trying to say? You actually yes. sit back and you can, you can, you can watch it happening. You know? Is it also getting a peek into a world that you don't usually have access to? Oh, yeah. one of the greatest assets in this job is actually being able to talk from a place of experience. There's a real gravitas for – being able to speak about jail as somebody who's been there, or I don't know, yeah, well, it's, it's like it, a... it is like that a bit. Like, uh, well, Jackie Weaver always calls me Forrest Gump. The nickname's Forrest <laughs> Why? Gump because well, you've been everywhere, done everything, <laughs> yeah, popped up true. here, there. You know, at Martin Luther King's funeral, 
they we all had accreditation, but they locked the doors at the Ebenezer Baptist Church as soon as Vice President Humphrey got there. They locked the doors and couldn't get in. And there's a Murdoch journal called Ray Kerrison. And uh, I looked around, how are we going to get in? And I saw the, the black choir filing in through the basement. I said, quick, come with me. And he said, we'll never get away with it. I said, I think we're either very high voices or very low ones. You know? <laughs> so that's just, and that's how we got in. Is so, it? Uh, and, and when we're coming out, we're upstairs. Um, the Secret Service, you watch down there, Bobby Kennedy was making very sure that Nixon didn't get his picture taken with Jackie. So whenever he went to go to the middle aisle, Bobby grabbed Jackie and took her out the side, side aisle and out the thing. And suddenly we've got, so he's coming out the side door and we've got Secret Service been saying, move it, move it, move it. And it's like a quarter of a million black Americans uh, are there outside and they see Bobby and they're chanting Bobby, Bobby, because he was now the last hope you know, yeah. uh, over civil rights. And by a fluke, this is the Forrest Gump moment, I got jammed between Bobby Kennedy and Ethel, his wife, as we're going out single file before they then just spread out 15 apart to walk behind King's um, pine wood coffin being dragged by a couple of mules. Uh, and it's just he looked so small. I and mean, he was quite tall, but he looked so skinny and frail and his shoulders seemed to stoop. Think, what am I doing? I and mean, his brother had just been killed, you know, six mm. years before, five years before. And there was a singer called Eartha Kitt, a black singer called Eartha Kitt. And I fell back and she's walking next to me and she had a she's barefoot and she's kicking her feet in the stones to make them bleed as a sort of a penance as she walked behind the coffin. It's the most extraordinary thing to watch. She was literally trying to cause herself personal pain. Wow. That's part of the thing. And as we walked up towards the um, university, the governor of Georgia, um, Lester Maddox, had the flag flying at full mast. He did not lower the flag to half mast for King's funeral. Wow. You know, it was just that is very Forrest Gump-like. You're right. I'm just <laughs> thinking about that whole situation where he's in with Elvis Presley and he's yeah. like, this, that is so true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, gosh, you've got enough to write like 700 more books if you want to. What the, a, the thing you made, point you made before, by having some experience, I don't want to talk politics, but by having some life experience, yes. it's been very good for me being in, 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 in the Senate, you know, getting some sort of, you, you, you can feel a lot more for it. You know, you haven't, it's too many on the Labor side have come up through the unions, too many on the Liberal side have either come up as lawyers or they're all just staffers mm. and all they know is, is the Canberra bubble and mm. that's not healthy. Was it also kind of good for your uh, reputation in some ways as a journalist to go and kind of fall on your sword for things that you were believing in or like, oh, go yeah. to, you know, I would yeah. imagine well, that that would have... That, that, politically, people say, geez, he obviously believes in the cause. You don't, you don't yes. go to jail as a publicity stunt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. And certainly not again and again not and again. again, and again no. <laughs> so what about moving to television? How did the, the you, you were saying that Scase came and, yeah. and said that um, you should come and do Hinch. What, what was that conversation like? Were you like, oh my goodness? He, he actually, he, he he, he knelt on the floor of my office and he had paper charts and he was showing, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and da da da, da. And then uh, um, Pixie and Christopher and Jackie and I went to an, a restaurant in Melbourne called Glow Glows, a famous restaurant, and he ordered a bottle of Grange and that's when he said, I'll make you the water Cronkite of Australia. You know? And he said, and, he, and what annoyed Channel 7 was he gave me total editorial control. So I'm not only the host, I'm the EP. And I'd say to this to management, I'd say, look, your fight's not with me, it's with Christopher. You know, if you want to bitch about something I've done, mm. go and talk to Christopher. He told me I'm the EP and the EP decided to do such and such. Was TV ever a dream for you? Uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to do television, yeah. I, I knew 
I'd done a, 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 some bits and pieces of television and mm. I knew how effective it really was and how it could be. And by taking uh, the Hitch program, sort of we... It did become sort of a newspaper on air again. So we had the same the same sorts of things we'd done by taking it from print to radio. We took it from radio to television. And uh, and it does have clout. I mean, we used to say that when television ended the Vietnam War mm. uh, because the visual images uh, of body bags coming home and they palmed little girls running down the, running down the road. Um, and just the power of television is, is, is amazing. What, what do you think you were good at in that job on air? corny thing about telling it like it is, you know, yeah. and, people, and people believed you. When Apollo 13 blew up a quarter of a million miles from Earth, and I was covering that one, there's a great cartoon in the New Yorker magazine and a woman saying, they're going to be okay, Walter says so. Yeah. And it's that trust, you know. Yeah. I mean, Ray Martin has that that mm-hmm. trust in, in, in this country, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we, we did have the shame file, and that was for you know, recidivist drink drivers. We had the sludge file for people who were... In those days, it was a new story about dumping waste muck in, in, in our streams and, 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 and drains. But the irony of it was, I didn't ever say shame, shame, shame. Was it the... It was was Visard. It, it was yeah, hunch. I was going to say, was it Visard? Because... The, the closest I came was... Um, Fraser wouldn't appear on my radio program, so I banned him. Then after he refused to go on, I banned him. And he'd gone every other station, every other program on our station except mine. And so one day he went on the fishing program. And so I took the answers from his fishing program and put new questions to them. You know? <laughs> so what do you do for the pensioners? Absolutely nothing. You know? <laughs> um, and he's talking about trout jumping upstream. And I said, is it true that when you say to your cabinet, jump, they jump? He says, they jump and jump and jump till they're exhausted. <laughs> anyway, he finally did come on. And it was around the time of Australia still recognised Pol Pot in Kampuchea because just to appease China. And I put it to him, I said, why is this? He looked down his nose, he said, well, that's just the way it is. And I said, well, shame, Australia, shame. Visard picked it up from there and it wasn't until Nick Giannopoulos was making the Wogboy movie and I was in it playing myself. Mm. I grabbed the script, we're on the desk, on the set, and I grabbed the script and said, I've been accused of it for 20 years, give me a pen, and we wrote it in, shame, shame, shame. <laughs> that was the first time I'd actually ever said it in public. Is it really? <laughs> you know, I was watching your hench from the last night and you were talking about how you'd gone to the dentist and it was the best part of your day or yeah. something. That <laughs> for the last time, good evening, Australia. Funny feeling, but we will go out in as much of a professional manner as we can. Doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. On a lighter note, I have a burst blood vessel in one eye, which on any other night would keep me off air. One consolation, it's so inflamed, you won't uh, know if I cry or not. Not that it matters. And in the same tone, I went to the dentist today and told him that I was contacting the Guinness Book of Records. It's the first time in my life when a visit to the dentist has been the highlight of the day. It must have really oh, hurt did. for yeah, that did. show to end. Yeah, because we... Uh, you know, we were out, we were out rating people. We, we, mm. we were winning the ratings, uh, and, and I know it very well because I got paid bonuses if I won the ratings. So once a month, I go and look through all the little numbers and work <laughs> them all out and see what the bonus was. You know. I said, look, that, 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 it's their right, and I, you know, they can they pay the bills, they can hire who they mm. want and fire who they want. But uh, we were out of Melbourne, and the Sydney the Sydney gang didn't like it at all. I mean, I, I remember in one of my books, I said people say that television is a dog eat dog world. I said it's not. 
it's a ratty rat world. Yeah, very true, <laughs> yeah, very so, true. You, you've you've said before that you sort of haven't really worked in meter if you haven't been sacked at least a few times. When you mine's a bit excessive. Sixteen <laughs> is a bit excessive, I think. You really? Like, you, know, you, know, you know why? You're an overachiever. <laughs> no, no, yeah, but this is other people have made this point for me. They used to hire me for who I was and what I said, and then they fired me for who I was and what I said. Bingo. And that was it. Yeah. And they'd say, oh, yeah, he's got freedom, he's got freedom, and then you'd exercise, and I'd say, oh, we didn't mean that much freedom. Yes, you know? exactly. So. When you would finish up jobs, did you always have that feeling of like, oh, I'll get another one? Yes. Even when I was down to my last $6.49 at the Wood End ATM, I still thought, yeah, something will come around. You know. Um, and I didn't get sacked the last time. I'm still on leave from Sky. Yes. So I'm on leave, you see, so I can always go back to Angela and say, hey, is that job hey, still there? That's it. I'll, I'll come can back I, and can do I it. Sunday night back again. That's it. Do, do you feel a bit like you've been a cat with nine lives over your career? Oh, yeah. And in more ways than one. I mean, mm. you know, the, uh, I mean, physically, I've been very, I've been very lucky. Right? Yeah. I should have died. I, I did, did my liver transplant for 60 minutes and, uh, I've actually held my old liver in my hand. Wow. Uh, and I said to the pathologist, do you see um, many as bad as that? Mm. He said, usually at autopsies. I said, Jesus. I said, all right. I said, well, how long do you reckon I had to live? He said, well, now I've got it out and had a good look at it. I reckon about two weeks. So I've been oh, pretty lucky. Goodness. And then then in New Zealand a couple of years ago, I was showing off to a younger woman, which is not smart at my age, and I, we went heli-riding. And heli-riding, you take a helicopter up a mountain and you ride mountain bikes down with there's no tracks for two and a half hours down the other side of the mountain. And I came off a couple of times, broke my back, broke some ribs, broke my knee, and you still had to ride out because the heli- the chopper's gone. Oh, <laughs> so terrible. trying to ride out, you know, um, so I've been pretty lucky. But I guess that gives you surely a an appreciation for the time you have. Oh, yeah, and this is, look, every, it sounds corny to say every day is a, is a new day. Every day mm. is another day. I mean, every day that I've been, I've had uh, next month it'll be, Seven years since I got my transplant. Yeah. It's that long. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, time goes quickly. Yeah, so seven years and, uh, you know, that's an extra 2,000 days of living. And mm. uh, and I would never have been a politician, never been in the Senate. I mean, I, you asked very early about what's it like being called senator, the word senator. Mm. It was really funny. My first appearance as senator-elect was at the Melbourne Press Club. And I've got all my old mates saying Senator Hinch and sort of laughing and, oh, yeah, Senator Hinch. And Michael Rowland was the um, MC. And as he got up to – we walked up to talk, he said, listen, I said, do you know Rachel Griffith, the actress? And I said, yeah. yeah, I've done it for years. He said, well, she's – I knew I was coming to see you today and she's written this note for you and gives me this handwritten note. And she said, I'm glad to see you're still alive. That's good. But then she'd said, how come, she said, if you're bankrupt, uh, you can't travel overseas, your passport's seized, you can't travel for seven years – but if you're a convicted sex offender, you can. And I read this out to the crowd. And I said, I don't believe this is true. But if it is, uh, I'll check it out. So in the next, my first seven months, every time I met up with Keenan, the Justice Minister, or Julie Bishop, the Foreign Affairs Minister, or the PM, I'd say, when are you doing something about this? This is wrong. Mm. And it finally got through the House and through the Senate, and it got in. And on December 2nd last year, I get a phone call, and he says, Darren, it's Malcolm. I just want you to know they turned the first one back at Sydney Airport this morning. Wow. And I just stood there in my lounge room and, and cried, you know. Wow. So you can't so stuff can't happen. Well you, you can, can really change things now. Yeah, You're yeah. gonna get a lot of napkin notes from now on <laughs> yeah. from people going, Could you just I, do I, I this you, one for me, dear? I, I tell you, I am glad that I uh, that I wasn't elected senator 
years ago. I mean, I wouldn't like to have been there when Malcolm Fraser had a majority in the Senate because they wouldn't have even talked to you. Mm. I mean, now they, they have to talk to you. And we, we people say, oh, you vote with the government this many times, that many times. They don't see how many amendments, Greens amendments, Labor amendments, my amendments, that actually get up there to try to improve the bill. And then, sure, you vote for the government then, but it's not the original bill that they they put there. So. Mm. Do, do you think, obviously, you're just on leave from Sky, so you could always go back there, but yeah. now you're, you know, you, you're doing this politics thing, you're making, cha- you know, you're making real change happen. Do you think this is the this is the rest of your life, or could you ever imagine going back to... Well, no, maybe? I'd go back. I, mean, I could be... They did a dirty deal on me, and I've been to get six years, I only got three. Yes. Uh, they, they got Labor and Liberals did that, mm. and they got Leary Adden in New South Wales as well. So I've got to face the electors next year. It'll be very tough getting elected again. Oh, I reckon you're going to well, get I'm, I'm hoping I will. Oh, I, I reckon you will. <laughs> yeah. Now, just wrapping up, I want to ask what you think the best and the worst thing about the media industry is. Defamation law is probably the worst. Mm. Uh, it's a shocker. This having, having lived in America and, and seeing what's there and freedom of speech and what it really means, I think that's terrible. But so, yeah, the best thing is it's still the most wonderful job in the world. Mm. It really is. You, know, you can, The things you can do. I remember sitting watching men go to the moon I got up, got back to my hotel that night, and I had these big black bruises across my th- both thighs. And I thought, "What the hell is that from?" Mm. It had been from we were we were the closest you could get to the unless you're part of the crew. Uh, and I was part of a pool, so I watched them walk out past us carrying their little white bags and their helmets on. And the power of that rocket taking off. Mm. I can remember I did the broadcast saying, the lights of the stand are shaking, everybody's shaking. It'd be, it'd be my knees banging on the underneath of the desks and I, and I, hadn't, and I got bruised both my, both my thighs from, from the, just that. It was like being hit in the stomach with a baseball bat. Wow. Now, that sort of experience, you know. You've had quite a life. Yeah. You really have. <laughs> the final five oh. questions, your biggest regret? Uh, Could it be 60 Minutes? It probably would be, yeah. Mm. Probably would be to stay on a radio show. But then I wouldn't have had the Melbourne experiences of, of 3AW if, I, if I'd gone there. Life would have been different, probably. Mm. You know. it was, yeah, so, but it was a career move I couldn't make because I already had a handshake deal uh, with the radio station. Well, it wasn't in writing, but I thought it's not. And I'd also I brought a producer down with me from Sydney. That was Terry Hayes, who went on to make the mo- all those movies and the dismissal and all those TV series. He mm. did all that. Uh, yeah, so that I probably would be, yeah. What's, if you get back into media, what would your dream gig be? Oh, just do Hinch Live again. <laughs> With a bit of shame, or, or, shame, or, or, shame or, or, thrown or, or, in. <laughs> actually, you know, I, uh, I would love to go back to uh, uh, Sunday night. I enjoyed those big big stories for them. You, know, mm. that you really do some good stuff, mm. in-depth stuff. Uh, is there a big idea that you've got that you've yet to get up? Have you, I'm, I'm going to guess it's about 75 books. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, no, the big idea, the one thing I, I feel I've failed if I don't get up is this National Public Register of Convicted Sex Offenders. Mm. In the United States, they've got it. I mean, I've stood in Times Square with an app, and if you punch in motel, 17 little flags come up, right, and shows you where motels are. You punch in sex offender, up come like 10 flags showing where they are. Mm. Um, Sarah... Monaghan, who was the, from the Hey Dad case, she showed me down in, in, in I went down to see her in um, San Antonio in Texas, and she showed me how it works down there. And she, we drove down the street and saw this guy, he, he had a pickup truck in the, in the driveway and he had a flagpole on his veranda, but you knew he was a convicted sex offender and you say, if he asked you to come and look at a puppy, you, that's the way Megan Kanker died, you mm. don't do it, mm. uh, and you... 
Uh, you don't if a ball goes over the fence, your kids don't go and ch- chase it, you mm. know? And, and you don't have the Molotov cocktails being thrown. It's just you, you know. She said she did it because she had a teenager going to be staying with him for a while. And she said, "Oh, don't use that route. Use the other street." So that'd uh, be my biggest regret. Yeah. I usually ask if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing to the people working in media? But you, you're in <laughs> politics, so yeah, <laughs> you've, you've got a good fallback career. Yeah. Uh, and finally, your advice to people wanting to get into media. It sounds corny. Just do it. And maintain the fire in your belly. Maintain the maintain the rage. Keep the fire in your belly. And uh, I mean, I know it's much harder now to get into media than when I did it. I mean, I had no qualifications. You know, I could talk a good story. You know, um, but it's much harder now. And 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 media is shrinking so much, and it's changing so much. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I I look at some of the print media and see the troubles they've got, and I said, why the hell would you ever put a print media up there without a paywall? I, I, I said to Murdoch, one of Murdoch's people, I said, why'd you do that? You're giving your stories away. Mm. So, yeah, just maintain the fire in your belly. It's, 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 it is an honourable, can be a very honourable profession. And if you can help it, try and be in the right place at the right, the right time. Right place at the right time. That's exactly <laughs> it. Yeah, that's true. Thank you so much for your time, Darren. It's been a delight to speak to you. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've gotta start somewhere.com.